Hi, this is Pastor Joel Webbin with Right Response Ministries, and you're listening to Theology Applied. Back by popular demand, our special guest is once again John Harris. He was our guest in last week's episode. If you haven't listened to that, you need to go back and listen to that episode first because this episode is actually the second part of one singular conversation that John and I had. It was over an hour and a half long. And so what we did was we took that conversation, we broke it up into two parts. Last week's episode, uh, we really laid down uh, just a theological general uh, framework for calling out the woke gospel, uh, recognizing why social justice is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It introduces law into the the gospel of free grace. But not only that, it introduces not God's law, but man's law, mob justice and not biblical justice. And so we lay that framework out. We deal with Timothy Keller. But in this episode, the second half of the conversation, John goes into far more detail, um, especially regarding Tim Keller, but also regarding Al Mohler and Russell Moore. So you're in for a real treat. Um, It's important for us to be able to peg and identify those evangelical leaders in the church church today who sadly are merely serving as water carriers for the political left. That said, don't give your money to those who are serving the political left. Don't give your money to ministries or ministers or organizations or companies that hate you, right? It's the second vote that we as conservative Christians have. We go to the voting booth, but we also, we make our vote every time we spend our money. And so God has reserved in this time as he has in all ages a remnant. We are not, hear me, we are not the only faithful, conservative, Christian ministry out there. But they tend to be few and far between. And we're one of them. And so if you're looking for someone to support, not only by your prayers and encouragement, but by your finances, please make a donation to Right Response Ministries. You can do so by going to our website, rightresponseministries.com. Last thing that I want to do is I want to plug Carpe Fide. Carpe Fide, seize the faith. They were at the G3 conference. They had a booth set up and they sold most of their shirts, but they're getting their stock refilled. And these are some of their supply, all right? This is their first shirt, Burn the Ships. It comes from the legendary phrase that Cortez issued to his men when they landed in Latin America, burn the ships. What it symbolizes is this, no retreat. We're not going back. We're only going forward. The other shirt that we have from Carpe Fide is this one. Come and take it. Come and take it. Now, you'll notice that we have here a pulpit on this shirt, right? So they've kept the Texas star. They've replaced the pulpit, or I'm sorry, the cannon, the iconic cannon that's typically there with a a pulpit. So what they're ultimately saying is that from King Leonidas to the the Texas, you know, fortress that was being defended, they're saying that pastors and churches need to defend their church, defend their pulpit. And a portion of the proceeds, if you buy this shirt, the come and take it shirt from Carpe Fide, a portion of those proceeds will actually go to Pastor James Coates and his church in Alberta, Canada. James Coates has taken that stand. He's told his tyrannical government, hey, I'm not handing over my pulpit. I'm not handing over my church. If you want it, come and take it. We as Christians here in America and all across the world should do the same. Without further ado, thanks for tuning in to Theology Applied. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. Do you see the potential of a swing the other direction? And what do you think these guys... Your, your Timothy Keller's, your, 
you know, the, the, you're, you know, Russell Moore's, what do you think they would yeah. do? Would, would they keep going this direction? Or do you think there's a point where they've lost enough followers and they see what direction the people are headed and, and they literally run out in front of it and try to pretend like they were there all along? Do you, th- do you think these guys have that little so this is a hypothetical. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously a hypothetical situation to think that you know conservative political conservatives are going to have. One of the big problems is we're so leaderless right now, not just in the political arena, but also in the church. Like, there's a lot of you're right, fed up True. people, but how many pastors are there? I mean, it's there's a demand that cannot uh, or a supply that that just doesn't exist to meet the demand that's right. out there, and so we we would have to see a bunch of men stepping up. Um, but I get, so the main, the main thing you're asking though, is like, if, 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 uh, if it was popular to be conservative or something like that, would these guys just be chameleons? And I've said, you know, um, I'll, I'll name some names. I'll get specific here. And I, I, I want to try to be as careful as I can, but this is, this is from a lot of study as far as um, reading sermons and blog posts and books from these guys. So the guys I'm mentioning are guys I, I feel comfortable saying this about. Al Moeller, I think is an opportunist. I think I, he might lean kind of slightly left on some things. He might lean slightly right on others. I think more so I see him veering kind of leftish, but he is an opportunist. And I can give you numerous examples of it where he plays both sides of an issue and if something becomes more popular he tends to like shift in that direction um so there's guys like that i think you're absolutely right and and it's kind of a shame it's sad because if it let's say the clan was popular they'd probably be running around with hoods like it that it's that bad you know they don't have convictions um uh or at least they the ones that they do have they have some maybe but not not a lot and they're they're out for themselves and then there's others who are um I think ideologues. I think Tim Keller is an ideologue. I think Russell Moore is an ideologue. I don't think they're going to change significantly. I think that they're, they will be an ideologue. Yeah. So I talk about this in, um, in, in the book that just came out, uh, Christianity and social justice, which by the way, I should have plugged it. You can go to Christianity and social if you want to get a copy of that. Uh, and there's a whole section on ideology. So, um, ideology, uh, as, as the name implies, is, is about abstractions, ideas, and taking, so taking these ideas and then imposing them. Uh, so um, if the idea is equality or equity, diversity, inclusion, right, that's some kind of an egalitarian uh, utopia of some kind, but everything is um, compared to, to that, and everything is weighed on a scale according to whether or not it is Uh, conforms with equality so the idea is equality so an ideologue is going to look through life and evaluate everything through a very narrow scope of of evaluation they're going to be looking at uh okay is it equal is it not equal and they'll start assigning values to even weird things right like they'll start assigning values to i don't know dr seuss books and things like that uh whether or not it forwards their their revolutionary agenda and so i think that Tim Keller and Russell Moore are ideologues. They're um, metaphysic. In other words, the way that they look at reality, when, when we're looking at it, let's say, um, and, and we're not perfect at all, but, but uh, hopefully we're seeing, we're, we're using the sense perception and the mind that God's given us. And we're, we're trying to see reality, the full spectrum of reality. We're trying to see in color. This is what God created. And, and if we understand what the Bible teaches about man, 
we're, we're going to, we're going to see things from his perspective as much as we can, not perfectly. Right. But an ideologue tends to, instead of seeing the colors, they see the one shade they're looking for. It's, it's, and they become obsessed with it. You know, equality is the only thing that matters, right? It's the only thing that makes that that's of any value and makes life worth living and that kind of thing. So I do see Tim Keller and Russell Moore kind of veering more towards an ideological uh, way of, of doing things where they, you, you even just said a minute ago about Tim Keller, when I described um, his first, one of the first influences he had um, uh, at, at Urbana. Um, oh gosh, what's his name now? <laughs> I'm trying to remember Skinner, Tom Skinner. Yeah. And, and I described what Skinner preached and you said, well, that's it. That's like Tim Keller in like every sermon or, or whatever that Tim, it's a theme that comes up because it, it's Tim Keller is, if you look at his bio, he's kind of like a sixties revolutionary type. He never really changed all that much. He's, he's got the same kind of philosophy. He's just, he's got become smarter. He's a theologian. He's added a lot of knowledge to it, but he's still an ideologue and he still has a vision for how he wants to see things and he's going to carry it out. And Russell Moore's like that as well. So, um, I think Matt Chandler's like that too. I think he's a guy that's just, he has this obsession, like trying to talk with them, trying to, to like, it's like trying to describe colors to someone who's colorblind sometimes. Like they're just not going to see it. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's a blindness there yeah. almost that like, they're just not on that wavelength. Um, so someone I, like, you know, yeah, go ahead. Real, real quick. You, you know, this because we talked about it in, in the episode that you came on, you know, a few weeks back you know, my experience in Acts 29 and Matt Chandler, but so I, I certainly have problems with Chandler and anybody who didn't watch that episode, go check it out. Calling, uh, calling out woke preachers by name with me and John. But, um, I did a whole whole thing on Chandler that said though, I'm more sympathetic towards Chandler. And this is why I think Keller, after reading your first book and your whole chapter on Keller, um, and, I, and I want us to get a little, I, I'm going to push you to get a little deeper on Keller because I think it'll be really helpful for our listeners. Sure. I'm less sympathetic for him because he, here's part of the thing. Keller didn't really come to, to the stage, if you will, in evangelicalism until later in life. I mean, he was, he was a small town. He was a pastor of a blue collar congregation, right? In Virginia or something like that That's right. for a while. And so, so for a long time, I mean, this guy is, you know, a, a pastor with, with, with not a lot of large influence, not, not a lot of fame or prestige or anything like that, hardly any, just a small local pastor, which is wonderful, by the way, a small local pastor. Uh, whereas Chandler, here's why I'm a little bit sympathetic. Chandler blew up so big and so fast and so young that I, I honestly think, I, I don't think that Chandler necessarily is the ideologue that, that you're describing, that like, at least not in the same way that Keller is. I think Chandler yeah. doesn't know. I think Chandler, literally, he blew up so fast. I mean, you think about that. Like, like, what does a week look like for a, a pastor who pastors 10,000 people? Like, like what, is, what is, and I don't think Chandler's lazy. So I'm saying that and in, in saying, I, I think he's busy. I think it's, that well, week looks very, very busy. And so my thing is, he probably hasn't read all these books. And then he just has some friends telling him he's taking his cues from Keller. You know, he's taking his right. cues from these. And so if he has older men who have done all, all the, all the reading and the writing and, and, and the study, and they're telling him, then he's just like, all right, I don't, I don't have time to study this. Ch Chandler didn't go to seminary. He didn't, you know, 
I, I think he has a bachelor's degree well, most, or, or maybe not even thing, that. Well, let me let me try to maybe I, I didn't do a good job maybe explaining I, ideology. Um, ideologues okay. tend to flatten reality and cram it into their obsession. Uh, and it, it's an abstraction. So they, um, most of the people we know, social justice warriors are ideologues, okay? So like most of the um, people that we think of as social justice warriors they're probably not thinking through it deeply, but they've still um, caught the disease, so to speak. Even like we could think of um, even religions sort of in this, in a way, like there are people that are, are adherents to religions that can be very pious, but they're, uh, they haven't thought through it deeply. Now, in the case of Tim Keller, I think you're absolutely right. Like he's, he's actually like, he, he's been kind of, um, enmeshed in this uh in, in some bad stuff for a long time and he's he, he's had more time to think about things and understand things and and so i i get that like he's perhaps there's more knowledge behind what keller's doing and but, he's leading the way in acts 29 yeah, he, we used to right. call like literally everybody would call him yoda that's how, that's what acts 29 calls tim keller so like when you think acts 29 like is separate from keller no acts 29 um Keller, Keller is the nothing separate from influence. Keller. No, like yeah. the Southern Baptist Convention is not separate from Keller, even though he's right. a Presbyterian. J.D. Greer is like, like even even that sermon he did when the fall affects us all. If you read the notes, he's like citing Keller all over the place. So, yeah, um, with with Matt Chandler though, uh, I, I think it it's that obsession with with inequity and race and, and things like that that that's what I why I say he's a, an ideologue because. Um, there's, I don't know if you read, there was a, a blog a few years ago from a, a pol- I think it was a policeman that went to his church and wrote this whole thing about like, here's what it's like at village church. And I've, I've heard a lot of people like close to Chandler who have come out of that church, basically say the same thing. Like, there's no way to reason to approach him that he's, he's on a one track mindset of like, we're going to carry out this equity, diversity, inclusion agenda, agenda. And by the way, it is featured in, in my book. I talk about Matt Chandler. And he does mix social justice law with the gospel too. So um, it's for, yeah. for a guy as sharp as he was or is, I mean, as much as I benefited from some of the things he said years ago, he should know better than to make that basic error, but he's yeah. blinded by something. And so um, it's this obsession, I think, with, with equality and trying to make everything egalitarian that causes some of this. So you're right. You know, we, we could, I mean, you might be right. Maybe I'm no, 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 you're, you're right. I think I, but I do think there is a, I, th- I think you're right. I, I guess I, at first when I, when I was hearing you with the, you know, the, you know, the ideological person, I was, I was just kind of assuming it was my fault to assume, but I was assuming that, that a high level of intelligence and study was required to be, no. Uh, ideological and so i was like well then i gotta defend my boy chandler <laughs> you know but uh because i i i think he's sharp don't the get me wrong study, i, I think better. he's probably smarter than i am but i don't think he's like this this bookworm well-studied you know he, he's not he's not coming from the ivory tower you know and and so but you're saying hey you can be ideological and well, be dumb you can be ideological and be smart yeah, like, like how do you study like how do you take a whole group of people you like white people we could say but you you could like nazi ideology i mean you take all the jews or something and say they're they're not even human basically because they don't conform to this abstraction in in our minds they're they're not um they, they don't 
we're not going to view them as God sees them to the full spectrum of what they actually are as a person made in God's image. Like we're going to, we're just going to completely reduce them down to like ones and zeros. Right. And they, there's, there's a deficiency in, in who they are because they're not forwarding the agenda we want. And, and so they, they get, you know, they, whatever bad thing happens to them, happens to them. That's kind of like, that's the way an ideologue looks at things. They just, reality gets reduced and flattened into, um, and I know this is kind of philosophical. So that's why I took a long time in, in my chapter on it to try to explain it to people. And I probably do a better job in the book uh, uh, doing that because I was taking a lot of time parsing it out. Right. Um, but it is. No, it's helpful. It, it, it really is a rejection though. If, if you know Peter Jones, Truth Exchange, I don't know if you've like, familiar with his teachings um no. one ism and two ism right so like romans oh yeah, one, yeah, yeah. okay i'm familiar right? but yeah yeah so it's it's kind of like that it's it's uh it like ideologues tend to like there's there's one thing and that's the only thing it's the only important thing and everyone must care about it we must be obsessed with it and anyone who's not right. is not you know worthy of of being part of our club that's that's an ideologue <laughs> they get that makes a lot of sense and yeah that's interesting because that 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 was you know, when, when I was always like looking at young men to, to become elders in, in my previous church that I pastored in, in California, the first church that I planted, um, that was actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was, we had that in, in our language. That was one of the things that would, um, that would immediately take someone out of the running for even consideration for being an elder because there were, there were lots of Christian men who were good Christian men, um, but they were a one-trick pony. Right. Yep. They, they, they only march to the beat of one drum, like uh, guys uh, who would um, do street preaching. And I'm a fan of street preaching. So don't get me wrong. You know, there's a lot of people. Well, that is it effective. Like, I, I don't even have time to, to go into that. that. But like, yeah, yeah, it, it's, I think so. I think it is effective. And um, there's a lot that God does with his word. Um, and saving is one of those things. Um, but but also condemning um, is one as well. So, anyways, uh, but some guys it's just street preaching. They they wanted to go to abortion clinic every single week, which is great. Love that. Um, and and they you know uh, the Jehovah's Witness would have uh, you know some kind of conference in town, all those kind of things. Um, and so it was personal evangelism, 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 and street preaching. Um, but but if you started talking to them about other pastoral issues that a pastor should be versed in. Um, and, and, and then just also just getting a, a, a ground, a, a understanding for their, for their doctrine. And, you know, they were just, it was anemic. It was, um, yeah. it was just like everything had been funneled into this one direction. And, uh, and, and that could be, you know, anything, you know, uh, you know, but anyways, and so, um, I say that to agree with you. It's, it's clicking for me now. And I, I appreciate well, you explaining it a little bit more because they don't an, an elder, people as they need to be well-rounded. Go ahead. Sorry. Gotcha. Say that again. They don't love. They don't tend to love people as much. They love ideas. And so when you mm-hmm. put them in, they, they usually have not the greatest interpersonal skills generally, like, like hardcore mm-hmm. ideologues generally um, are just m- much more in love with the ideas in their own head and conforming everything to that vision. So biblically though, and, and just, and just, this is the way the world works. God created the world there's there's actual things out there tangible things people are are out there uh right. who have souls obviously they're intangible but there's there's a whole real world it's not the only th- the, the ideas in our head aren't the only thing that matters and it, that's a basic that's a basic christian assumption that um we we live in a a world that is much bigger than us 
And so when, yep. um, for pastors, when we interact, when we have a bedside manner and we shepherd and we, and we shoot the wolves, right. We are also aggressive when we need to be, we're dealing with the real life stuff. And mm -hmm. we learn to love real things. And my, my, one of my contentions uh, with the social justice advocates is I don't think they, they have a love oftentimes for real things for, for the, mm. It, they, they have a love for ideas and then and then the things that exist are supposed to just either they are, are supposed to conform to that to, to the idea they have but there are there are some things out there there i mean there's people out there that just they can get on your nerves even but we love them and we love um we love the blessings god give, gives us and the smell and the taste and all of that stuff i'm not saying social justice warriors don't they don't enjoy some of these things what I'm saying, though, is they devalue the importance of anything that doesn't conform to the, the, the one thing, the one agenda, the one. Right. So that's, now that's super helpful. And it makes me think like, you know, they don't love the whole person and they also don't preach the whole counsel of God. So in, in both regards, it's like that's what a faithful pastor does. And, and right. the only difference between an elder and a, and a Christian man is that an elder must be a certain way, meeting these biblical qualifications. But every Christian man, whether he's an elder or not, um, should be. So it's must be versus should be. Every Christian man should be aspiring, not necessarily aspiring towards the office of eldership, which is a noble thing to aspire towards, um, but, but a Christian man uh, can aspire towards business. He can aspire towards something else. That's right. I don't want to hold the office of elder, but he should aspire to all of those qualifications. He should aspire to being doctrinally sound, um, able to teach that which is true and refute those who uh, contradict it. He should aspire uh, to being um, a man about one wife and all, all well, that he should be. Um, so all those kind of qualifications, every Christian. So it's for pastors. It's also for Christians. And, and what I want to say is that pastors must be, and every Christian man and woman for that matter, should be loving the whole counsel of God and applying the whole counsel of God to the whole person. I think in a nutshell, that's, that's what it comes down to is um, are we looking at all of God's word and we, are we applying it with love to all of, of human life, to all of the person? And um, anytime we become obsessed with, with one agenda, one idea is what you're saying, then, then we yeah. lose that. So yeah, everything you're saying is super helpful. Let, let's talk just a little bit more about Keller. This is something that you wrote. I wanted to quote sure. it for you <laughs> Go for and then it. see if you'll, if you'll flesh it out a little bit more for us. Yeah. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was insightful. Here it is. In 2010, Keller told Christianity Today, it's biblical that we owe the poor as much of our money as we can um, possibly give away using the language. And this is that, that was his quote, but this is your writing, uh, using the language of moral obligation. He implied that the have nots on the basis of their need possessed a legitimate claim to resources, not distributed to them, which belongs to the haves. So the church's job, um, is to address or sorry, the church, the church's job was to address these inequities by not only meeting needs, but also addressing the conditions and social structures that led to such needs in the first place. That's something that you wrote in your first book. Um, right. And that quote in, in what you wrote, the part that's from Keller is it's biblical that we owe the poor as much of our money as we possibly can give away. Right. That is just insane. Could, could you just flesh that out a little bit and tell well, us why that's insane? Uh, one of the big things that makes it insane, I think, is uh, the assumption behind it is, is is if there's a need, right? The poor need something. And if, if that's the basis on which uh, we give our money away because a need exists, um, 
if you carry that logic further, everyone needs to be saved and God doesn't save everyone. And so what does this say about God? I mean, is he, this would, I think, create a moral conundrum in a way that God's law supposedly says that we're supposed to meet these needs, but, but this isn't something that he's necessarily even doing himself. Um, And so I I do see that this could get into the gospel. Keller doesn't take it that far, but I'm just saying the logic seems inescapable in my mind. Um, The obvious thing, when we look at a quote like that first is that it's just, where do you find this verse that says this? Um, This is, you know, money all belongs to God. Every resource does ultimately, and we're stewards of it. God allows us to have it temporarily. um, But there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that we, uh, there, there's a moral obligation. We owe the poor as much of our money as we can possibly give away. And it's such a, and what's the standard for that? How do you figure that out? So it's, it's so, it's so problematic. Um, we are, there's a principle we're supposed to love one another and, and included in that would be, uh, meeting needs, especially, uh, first to the household of faith, but then to the, you know, those who don't provide for their families or worse than unbelievers. It's, it's to the people in close proximity to us, loving our neighbor. These are things that we're supposed to be doing. Um, but the, the poor, that's just, these are, again, we, we see the language of ab- abstraction and ideology almost coming out here too. Is it, is it the poor in our local proximity, the real tangible people that we live with, or is it just poor as a general category? Uh, right. And, is, and what so, would happen if, if, if everybody actually followed that. So let's say everybody who has more than they need, right? So Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. Right. right? So like, so first, how do you measure that? What's the metric? Let's, let's say it's, it's shelter. And then you have to say, well, how, how big of a house, what, what, what amount is, is ethical to pay and all those kind of things. But let's, let's say you quantified all of it. And then every, every first world person got saved and is a Christian now. And every single one of them want to follow Keller's suggestion here. And, and give every penny they have above the line that we've all quantified now for what is actually needed. Um, and they give it to the poor. And what if, now I know that the devil's advocate's going to say it still wouldn't be enough because there's so many people who are poor. And that may be true. Um, but let's just say hypothetically that, that there were more rich people. Let's say we lived in a world where there were more rich people than there were poor. Um, what, all right, you give it all to the poor, and now the poor have more than they need. If there's, you know what I mean? And like, who do, who do they give it to? Is, is it okay to have wealth beyond like, then, you know, and, and, and then here's the thing is at the, at the end of the day, so you give it to the poor. Now they have more than they need. So now right. do they need to give it back? And then we just keep going back and forth, back and forth. And, and the answer, I think that like what Keller would say, and I think a lot of Christians would say, no, you would give it to the poor and, but there would still be need one because there's so many poor people, but let's, let's say there weren't so many poor people. There were more rich people than poor people. We give them everything they need. I think there would eventually be still at the end of the day, give it five years, give it 10 years. There would be a need once more. Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you. And I think the reason right. why there will always eventually be a need is I think Keller would say there will always be a need because he wouldn't say this explicitly, but this is what, what it implies. He would say there will always be a need because wealth is a zero-sum game, a.k.a. God is not a good provider. God has commanded us to be fruitful and multiply, and, and behind our backs, he's been snickering and laughing because he's called us to do the very thing that will be our own demise because he created a planet that cannot sustain his people obeying what he told them to do. I, I think that's Keller's view. Um, my view would be, no, you'll yeah. always have the poor with you because you'll always have sin. And poverty is a result of sin. 
Um, in the same like meaning now it's not always your individual sin. It doesn't mean every poor person is in sin. There are a lot of poor people in North Korea, but even that is due to sin. Not necessarily their sin, but but somebody else's sin who who is afflicting them. And so but but the reality is a sinless world, what I believe, would be a a world that is rid of poverty because I cannot believe that God actually created this world with not enough resources to 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 meet the needs and even the, the common grace pleasures and enjoyments of people who who are fruitful, multiply, and fill it. Like that that's mm-hmm. just insane to me. But I I think so my whole point is to say if we actually did what Keller's saying, it seems like then all of a sudden the poor people would have more than rich people and but eventually the problem is even if we did that, if we did this equal redistribution within within a month, within a year, some people, it won't be equal for long because eventually some people are going to invest their money wisely. Other people are going to spend it lavishly and, and give it a year, give it a decade. And all of a sudden you have rich and poor. So if we level the playing field um, economically today across the whole world, everybody has the exact same amount, give it a decade. And all of a sudden you're going to have people who are in- incredibly wealthy and people who are incredibly poor. And I don't think that's because of, of a flaw in the way that God designed this world and the resources it has. I think it's a flaw in man who chose to rebel against God in, in, in sin. And because of sin, um, we, we do things that, that produce poverty. Yeah. Well, I hadn't thought of that. That's a, that's an interesting way. I I was thinking about um, some of the other people who have said similar things in scripture, like Martha to Mary, right? Um, I mean, Martha didn't really, Martha was just getting on Mary's uh, case for wasting, right? Uh, Resources that could have, and not helping her and these kinds of things. Judas was really the one though, actually, he's the one I really should, the patron saint of social justice, Judas, who said, uh, (laughs) you know, we could have sold this we could have sold this and and given it to the poor. And that, that's kind of a, you know, I I hear that kind of in what Keller's saying here as well. Um, It's, it's, and again, it, it's so nebulous. It's so vague. Um, Ron Sider likes to try to say they're in rich Christians in, in an age of hunger that they, there's poor uh, all over the world. It's our hungry neighbors in Africa and Asia and other places that aren't, you know, they're, they have trade inequities and these kinds of things. And we're in sin because we're not giving them resources, but there, there's, there's never a way to actually rectify the situation completely because you'll never, like you just said, you'll never actually get rid of poverty in this fallen world. So um, yeah, I, I think it's better just to live life the way, uh, according to Providence, uh, we we're situated in different places and we have different responsibilities. Our family, the sizes of our, our families are different. The sizes of our church are different. Where we live is different. The, the needs of the, those areas are different. There's so many different contingencies and we have to just try to cha- be charitable, but I'll just steward the resources God has given us to the best of our ability. And you know what? Sometimes that means that you may be taking your family out for a nice dinner and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the way a market economy works, you're actually feeding a lot of people doing that because they have to wait on your table and right there, they're, the money's not going and disappearing somewhere. It's, you know, it's, waiters are getting it and restaurants getting it. And so it, there's sort of like a misunderstanding of how a market economy even works. Um, sometimes I know Piper had said this years ago, I was at a conference. I heard this firsthand. I can't give you a recording. I know I heard it though. Someone asked him if it was a sin to buy a new car. And he said, yes, it was a sin to buy a new car. And I'm like, well, where do you get this? You know, that's not in scripture anywhere. Um, 
It's it, it's certainly not, and we we just can't go beyond what God has told us in Scripture, and that's the the danger of this is you get you, you tie yourself up in knots when you start going past that, and um yep. so yeah there's you're there's, absolutely right. Go ahead, sorry. There's a lot. I was going to say there's a lot of other quotes in that chapter about that are just as problematic. Keller Keller's a mess when you really uh, start looking at his past, his influences, his beliefs on social justice. I I was my my eyes were popping out of my sockets when I started researching it because I knew he was left leaning. I didn't realize it was this bad. I didn't realize right. he was you know he was really firmly in that kind of left uh, leaning category. So you you know one real quick <laughs> real quick. One really interesting thing that I, I read, um, it was it was a something that Steve Jobs said, just in terms of the poor and and wealth and the way that it works. Uh, somebody once challenged Steve Jobs with his, you know, one of his arch rivals, Bill Gates, and said, "Bill Gates does so much uh, for charity. He's a you know philanthropist and, and humanitarian, and um, and Steve Jobs kind of was was known for doing very little, if if nothing." Um, he, he didn't give away his money. I said, how, how come you're not charitable like Bill Gates? Um, he said, well, Bill Gates is charitable because Bill Gates doesn't have any talents. <laughs> he, uh, he said, Bill Gates has only ever taken over things or slid into things. He hasn't ever done anything. And uh, for guys who can't do anything, they don't have anything to give to the world except their money. He said, but um, I have alleviated poverty more than Bill Gates not by my charity, but by my work. And I thought that that was really, really insightful. Now, regardless of whether it's true, whether, whether or not, you know, Apple has actually, you know, made people's lives that much better, because I think there's an argument to the counter, you know, but they're, you know, they're using um, the sweatshop but, labor, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so whether or not that's true, the concept, I think, has a lot of truth in it. So whether or not it's true in the case study, of Steve Jobs versus Bill Gates. I think the, the the concept is true. And I think that's what guys like John Piper just don't understand. But guys like R.C. Sproul did. R.C. Sproul was okay with the finer things in life. <laughs> Ligonier cruises, you know, they, they weren't doing Ligonier oh, bunk well. beds, you know, at the, you know, the old Baptist camp. They were, you know, going on cruises, yeah. you know, and, and having a good time. And, and not to say that R.C. Sproul was, you know, um, foolish in the way that he spent his money. But R.C. Sproul, from, from what I've read and what I've heard, uh, he slept with a clear conscience at night and he had nice things and he encouraged Christians to build wealth and all these things. And yes, be generous. But but you're right, John. Like One, one of the ways that we're generous is not just by giving every dime we have um, after paying our rent, um, you know, but but by start, starting a business and uh, that creates jobs for people. There, there, there are guys who 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 have they're, they're pagans. They've never they've never actually given to a charity, and they've certainly never given to the church. And yet, they've created more wealth for more people than than John Piper ever has or ever will. And, and, and wealth and so, is not the only metric too. We, we need to remember that it's um, there's a quality of life too that. Uh, some people, you know, obviously don't have a lot of money, but their quality of life is very good. And there's other people that are completely miserable who have all the money in the world. And so um, the things that actually matter aren't, aren't the, the number that, um, that pops up when you log into your bank account. The, so many uh, people who have little are 
satisfied and um and and whatever you have whether it's money or whether it's just giving of your time time's another thing you can give people um your talents you know whatever uh you know you 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 do you (laughs) i guess to to say a california phrase but uh god's made everyone different and and we have to allow for that and we we can't just pigeonhole everyone into this really super legalistic um standard that uh allows people to really one up each other and you know well i don't drive a new car and i you know i i give all my money to the poor and i could be drawing you know so much money from my book sales but i don't i donate to charity it's like okay but how about, you know, <laughs> that's between you and God, just, just live your life. And um, I think of like the widow with two mites. She was uh, the, uh, the moral of that story. I remember I heard John MacArthur preach on it years ago. And I had always thought like, this was a story about exemplifying her sacrifice and, and how important it was. And cause it was, it was what she had to live on and she gave it. Right. And I think though, when you read it in context, it seems clear that actually it's an indictment of the Pharisees that this is the kind of thing that you are doing. You're, you're putting these heavy burdens on people that they're giving even the last, what they had to live on. And so um, I, I see Keller is, as in that vein as well, uh, at least with that quote that we just read. And uh, it's not right. It's not, it's yeah, not right. No, you're right. So. It's, it's great. The hypocrisy is crazy. It's, so I don't think there's anything wrong with having a $900,000 house. I don't have a $900,000 house for the record but I don't think it would be wrong. But I think it is wrong if you have a $900,000 house and you write a book like Radical. You know, I, I think <laughs> right. that, you know what I'm saying? That's when it becomes a problem. And so like R.C. Sproul, I mean, this is public knowledge. You know, you can look it up on online because it, it was a, you know, it wasn't a, a, a church, it, you know, but with Ligonier, I think he was paid a little over 200 grand. And, and yeah. I assume he got book sales. And I assume that he also had a salary from his church as, as a co-pastor there of, um, of St. Andrews, um, the church that he pastored for several years. And, um, but R.C. Sproul, he, I love R.C. Sproul. I don't think there was anything wrong with that. Um, because R.C. Sproul didn't write books telling people to, to give everything away. And I guess my, I'll give Piper credit in this regard. Um, Piper is one of the few guys who talks like that and and mm. from what I've heard, does it? David yeah, Platt doesn't. David Platt talks like Piper, but lives like Sproul. And Keller, I don't, I don't really know Keller, but it, it's it's just. I mean, he seems to be doing fine. But that kind of rhetoric, right? We we owe the poor as as much of our money as we can possibly give away. The people who take you up on that, this is the irony. It's usually the poor. It's it's usually yeah. the poorest Christians, you know, who who are barely getting by, uh, trying to love their kids, love their wife, work working a job that that's hard work, you know, usually physical labor, you know, crawling into bed late at well, night to wake up and do it all over again, and they're the ones who are taking Tim Keller up on on these kinds of statements, and like, well, technically we could live off of thirty five hundred dollars a month instead we, of we the know what the eight hundred that we make. The most generous know. state is in the country. Do you know what is it? Mm-mm, it it goes back and forth. I think right now it's Utah. It's it's between though usually Utah and Mississippi, the most mm. generous, like giving the most to to charitable uh, causes, and wow. Mississippi is the poorest state in the country. So just wow. think about that. I mean, and then it's also you know heavily evangelical. So, um, 
for all the uh, the negative attention that a state like Mississippi gets, they they giving of their from their poverty. And um, and and I think wow. I just wanted to illustrate your point that you just made, uh, which I thought was a good point. So I'm sorry I interrupted your train of thought. there. No, no, you're right. So so let me ask you this and, and we'll go ahead and, and land the plane. But uh, la- last question, just again with Keller, because I think, you know, we've just got a lot of listeners like myself who have benefited from Tim Keller and, you know, for years we're reading his books, listening to his sermons, and there was a lot of good stuff, but we, we started seeing, you know, the, the writing on the wall and having concerns. And so I just, you've, you've done some, some substantial research on him. Um, And so one of the things that that you wrote about in regards to, to Keller was um, that he seemed to have a peculiar fascination with Karl Marx. Um, is that true? And, and what, and what did that look like? What, what did he, was there anything he disagreed with Marx over or, or what, it, what drew him into Karl Marx? And where do you see that in, in whether it be his writings or his preaching or uh, where, where did you, where did you get that from? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if I'd use the word fascination. Uh, he, okay. He then I, I um, use the word fascination. Well, you know, Sorry. I, well, I, he, he might, he, he may have a fascination. He certainly has a fascination, I would say with like new left thinkers, but I think that's just because of the, the world he grew up in. He um, came, you know, at Bucknell university or Bucknell college. Um, you know, he was involved with the more, the activist students. And then, you know, he, he gets involved with hearing the Tom Skinner thing that changes his life. And then uh, Edward uh, Elward Ellis, when he's in seminary, basically tells him that you, he doesn't use the term, but it's the same concept. You have white privilege and Keller accepts that. And then um, Harvey Kahn gives him the hermeneutical spiral, which is basically a, it, it, they'll, they'll claim it's not postmodern, but it, it's subjective. It's a subjective way of reading a scripture. It's the same way where liberation theologians read the Bible pretty much um, this kind of reader response uh, way of looking at it. So like Keller, these are his influences. And then you see in his writings, you, you can tell he reads a lot of, um, he reads Foucault. If there's a, honestly, if there's an obsession he has or a fascination, I think it's Foucault. He talks about Foucault in some sermons quite a bit. Uh, French. Yeah. Uh, Foucault. Yeah, Mikhail Foucault, or some people will say Michel Foucault. I always get, whenever I say Mikhail, people, uh, they, they write me and say, it's Michel, but uh, it depends, I guess, who you're talking to. Um, Foucault was a uh, French. Um, deconstructionist, a postmodern thinker. And um, he he's known mostly for uh, his book, Discipline and Punishment, which is about the prison system and how uh, he, he talks about, he calls them discourses, but how um, there's, there's these systems set up and they, uh, and basically it's, it's more complicated. I'm, I'm trying, I'm giving you the real shorthand here, but it's, it's not just Marxism's class conflict, but there's this really complicated kind of interplay of language and all kinds of things that constitute power relationships. And these power relationships form these discourses. And so it's, it's, um, there's definitely a Marxist flair to Foucault when you read him, as there is a Marxist flair in most of the postmodern thinkers. Uh, but um, Foucault, so, so Foucault's thing was, um, he, he was obsessed with power. He was an ideologue. And everything was power. Everything was power. Uh, in fact, I think he created his own term, um, a, a uh, power, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the term that he created, but 
it, it was basically the, the concept that he was trying to get across was that basically everything's everything's power. And so Keller also, he, he likes to quote Foucault and Foucault's um, going after power relationships and analyzing things according to power dynamics. And um, Keller will say that, you know, every it's inescapable that power conflicts are part of this world and oppression is part of this world as a result. But Christianity is the escape hatch. Jesus is the escape hatch. Um, and I think it's power discourse that I'm thinking of. I think that was the term Foucault came up with. But anyway, um, so these so so because Jesus gave up his power as the son of God and came to this earth, uh, that is the example that Christians are supposed to give up their power. And so it plays right into the whole let's redistribute our power. Let's sit down and listen. Let's, I mean, it's, it's all this, it's the social justice stuff. And it sounds really good when you're a preacher in New York city. So um, he, I, I would consider Foucault a, a more neo-Marxist thinker, um, but he, he quotes James Cone. I mean, the favorable things about James Cone and, and his analysis of, of religion um, that you'll find a lot of, of, of those kinds of guys um, with Marx though, just for our listeners real quick, he, sure. he's the black father liberation. of black liberation theology. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the insight, the main insight he gets from James Cone is that the religion of um, the slave masters was basically illegitimate and the religion of the slaves was a more pure type of Christianity based on what? How do you know that? Why would you say that? Well, based on the fact that they're oppressed, they can identify more with with the New Testament and um, they're basically they're not in sin like the like slave masters would be. So I, you know, how how you how you read this back into the new Testament or, the, you know, the old Testament, forget it, but how, how, how you make that work. I, you can't, I mean, it, it's, it's imposing things onto Christianity that are foreign to it, but, um, but yeah, so, so James Cone, Foucault, um, Marx though, he has some crazy, I mean, I'm just saying they're crazy to me quotes um, where he says that, let's see, I'm trying to think if I can pull it up here. Cause I want to get the quote, right. Um, uh, He's there's actually a few things um, from Marx that, that he says, but I can't find it right now. But basically, I'm going to summarize it um, that Marx cared about. Uh, he, oh, here I found it. He was the uh, only major thinker other than God himself who held up the common worker with a high view of labor. I mean, that's kind of that's crazy talk. The Marx. You know, the only major thinker other than God who held up held up the common worker. That's a quote um, from from Keller. That, yeah, well, um, it's a sum. It, yeah, it's so. In the um, I, I have the quote um, cited in the book. This is um, I'm. It's a sentence where there's half of it is a Tim Keller quote, and then I'm summarizing the the end of it because I'm trying to reduce the whole paragraph. But yes, he does say major. Th- Marx is the only major thinker who held up the common worker other than God. Uh, with a high view of labor. So th- this is his teaching and you can go look it up. It's in a, um, one of his sermons. Um, I'll give you the right. It's made for stewardship is the name of the sermon, but he talks about um, Marxist thinkers as well saying, you know, these weren't bad people. You know, they were just trying to alleviate poverty, these, these kinds of things. So it, it it's obvious that he's got a very left-leaning bone in his body. And um, I updated the article because after I wrote the book, some other information came out, like, for instance, he is a registered Democrat. I didn't know that. So I put that in there as well. And some things like that. Um, Keller was a registered Democrat. Keller, Keller is a registered. <clears throat> he has been for years, but he is a registered Democrat. Yes. Wow. 
So is so is Mark Dever, by the way. No. So you can actually, and then the only reason we know that is because in those You're particular, joking. no, I'm not joking. Are you it's, serious? It's, I'm serious. It's in the public record. You can actually go. That's how we know is in New York State. You can actually look up party affiliation. And so someone just searched Tim Keller and then Tim Keller had to go answer it and try to explain himself. And it's kind of this whole awkward situation, but yeah. So um, there's a million things I could bring up about Tim Keller. I mean, he, he admires Saul Alinsky's vision of community organizing. He was on the advisory board for the Ann campaign. Um, there's just a lot there, but, uh, but yeah, so I would say there's political stuff, right? He's politically progressive. There's also though, and, and, and these two are connected in some ways, but there's theological stuff there too. Um, hermeneutical spiral, that way of looking at scripture where your, your in, interpretation is happening along with, um, well, the, the interpretation, the meaning of the text is, is this interplay between the interpreter and the text itself. That's postmodern. That's you, you get rid of objective truth that kind of destroys inerrancy. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything you want me to expand on, but that's Tim Keller. No, that, that was fantastic. That's exactly what I was hoping for was just a detailed analysis, breaking it down. Cause I, yeah, a lot of that was foreign to me. I, kn- I knew there was a problem. I didn't yeah. know the, the engaging Keller book in two Engage- engaging Keller. Yeah. 2013. Now this is, if you can find a copy, I think it's out of print. Um, but it's, it's got some really good stuff in it from some and, traditional and Presbyterians. Is engaging Keller. Who's the author? Uh, it's, it's by a bunch of authors. Um, in fact, if I type it in, it's, it's like, I think it's like 10, maybe eight or 10 authors that are all Presbyterians. Uh, who uh, decided to go after some of the, his theology. Um, and it's like really basic stuff. Like uh, it's not really coming up. I it, it is out of print now. But uh, but yeah, you can, I think D.A. Hart was one of the contributors. I think that's where I found out about it. Um, yeah, so if you type it in, you, it will come up engaging with Keller. Um, and it's Ian Campbell and... Uh, DJ Hart is part of that. There's a bunch of people, Ian Hamilton. And so, so they talk about like how he rebrands the doctrine of sin, um, his doctrine of the church, his doctrine of hell. I mean, it's like some really basic stuff that they're, they basically say he gets this wrong and they have all the the citations there. Hmm. So that's wow. a resource. If someone can find an imprint book, then, then they can use it. If, if there's a concern about Keller. Wow. That's yep. super helpful, John. Thanks for the, yeah, that resource. Pleasure. Thanks for breaking that down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, any any final thoughts that uh, you want to share with us? I feel like that's been super helpful. We got to talk about your, well, really both of your books, um, but your latest book. So we have Social Justice Goes to Church, but then your latest book is Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. Um, I, I like, I, I didn't even catch that, but I, I see what you, I see what you did now with the the Machum, you know, the, um, Christianity yeah. and liberalism. I, I like that. Just saying well, we'll these do are two I, different religions. I don't want to end it on like a bummer note. Like, Hey, Keller's kind of terrible. <laughs> I just kind of want to, okay, well, give, give us something positive. Yeah. You can, you can send all the hate mail to me. I, for people that get mad at this, but, uh, uh I love um, it. I love it. I'll mail. say that I think the book's doing real well. I've, I've had a lot of, and I'm not just saying that cause I'm supposed to say it, but, but people have really benefited from it. And, um, I've had a lot of people reach out and just say uh, how, how it's really made everything clear for them, which is, was my intention. So um, 
that's going well. And I, to, to riff off of something you said earlier, I think you're absolutely right that there is, there's a change going on. I, people don't want the same old, same old, they don't want, um, the, the, the social justice, but really just more the compromised fake pastors anymore. They, they, they're, the, the deck is being reshuffled. And my, my confidence is in that God, um, he says the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. He will preserve his church. He builds it. And, uh, and, and the sheep hear his voice. And so there's nothing that can stop the church. Uh, Tim Keller can't stop the true church. He, um, no one can, no false teacher can. And so, um, that's, that's my encouragement and comfort. And I'm, and and the cool thing is right now, I think we're seeing that happen. We're seeing with all the bad things that are going on out there, there's a hunger and there's an energy that, that, you know, you sense, and I'm sensing it too. And people want authenticity. They want the word of God and they, and, and they don't care if it's politically incorrect. They don't care if, uh, you know, people hate them for it. They're, they're going to, they're going to cling to it. And I'm, and it, there's really a sifting going on. We're seeing who the true, who the true Christians are. And, um, and, and, and that's a beautiful thing. So I'll end it on that Amen. note if, if we can. No, that's super helpful. That's really, really helpful. And I think if things continue to go that direction, if there is a resurgence um, and, and, and there is a tipping point and there is a critical mass and all those kinds of things, I think there will be guys who will try to, try to all of a sudden turn around and, and say, oh, we've always been on this side and try to benefit from it. And my caution would be just as a last pastoral note, um, look at repentance. And, and I think two factors, one, um, godly sorrow doesn't, uh, godly real repentance that leads to life. It comes from godly sorrow and godly sorrow, uh, doesn't work, wait for opportune times to repent. So, so one side is, um, when did the person repent? Was it once things shifted and it became popular? Once people started wanting bold pastors, then they started being a bold pastor? Um, so when, when, when did they repent? What was the timing? And then also, was it repentance only in deed or was it in deed and in word? Meaning um, that they, they changed their position, their actions, um, but, but was there ever a point, right? Because if some of these guys come back around, praise God. But but was there ever a point when they actually in word said, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was teaching this. I was saying that. I did this. I did that. This is how it directly contradicts with God's word and the truth. I was wrong. Um, my, my concern is that you'll see, guys, if things start to shift, if there starts to be this conservative Christian sound doctrine resurgence you're going to see guys try to get out and head ahead of it try to pretend as though they were leading it and try to get all of these followers to still stay with them and some of them to even come back and i would just say when did they make the switch right that to turn they turned right that's repentance to turn when did they repent when did they turn was it once things were opportune or did they turn even when it would have cost them and then two did they turn only in their actions they started writing new articles. They started changing, you know, having a little bit more aggressive tone. They started taking some stronger stances. Did they, did they just change in what they do and what they teach? Or was there ever a point where in word, repentance and word, where they said, this is what we previously did, and this is how it was wrong. And that's, that's what I rarely, rarely see mm-hmm. from some of the big Eva guys. 
is even the guys who have turned or changed on a certain position, um, they just they 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 turn on a dime, and then they act like that's where they always were, like 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 we're stupid. They literally just yeah. like we're stupid. Like it's like like There's like we don't know how that's a direct contradiction from what you yeah. were teaching for decades. For decades, it's all recorded. We have yeah. it, you know, and, and not just something you taught 20 years ago, but something you said two weeks ago, direct contradiction. And so all I want, praise God, you changed your position. That's wonderful. All I want is in addition to repentance and deed, repent in word. So go forward and say, we're going this direction. And you might have noticed this directly contradicts the direction we were going five, five minutes ago. Um, I, w- I was wrong. I'm yeah. a man. I, I get it wrong. Um, please forgive me. It's like, I mean, some of these guys, it's like, you could afford to be wrong once or twice, right? You, you've been faithfully, according to the record, right? You've been faithfully ministering for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Like, I think you can afford. And honestly, if anything, I mean, that would probably, which defeats the whole point that I'm trying to make, but that would probably work in their favor with their listeners. People would probably, they'd probably become even more popular if they would be willing to, you know, just to to own something. So... Anyways, all that being said, I, I agree with you. Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and I think, you know, we're, not prom- we're promised that the church will endure. We're not promised that America will. But I'm hopeful even for America. I'm hopeful even in the near future. And to the point where one of my big concerns is not even uh, what are we going to do when we get shipped off to the, the gulags. Uh, my, my concern, because I don't actually think that's going to happen. My concern is what are we going to do when we win and and the bad guys pretend like they've been on our team the whole time and that they actually even archi- were the architects behind the scenes of this win, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, well, we did that. We knew all along, you know, we, the reason we were careful, we, like I can just, I can hear the explanations and uh, yeah, I want to warn people preemptively against it. So, all right. Well, uh, one more time, the website, what's the website where your book can be bought? and socialjustice.com okay great all right well all of our listeners go out get yourself a copy of uh john's latest book and feel free to get the other book while you're at it john thank you so much for coming on the show as a special thank you for your gift of any amount we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store to access this offer visit rightresponseministries.com slash offer we highly recommend pastor joel's book am i truly saved If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com slash offer. And thank you for your generous support.